G'day, this is Peter Reddy from PeterReddy.com. When I'm not wrestling crocodiles or riding kangaroos, I'm listening to Bill Grady on You Are The Guest. Welcome to You Are The Guest, a weekly show where you can be the guest and tell people what you and your friends and neighbors think about news events and issues of the day. It's part talk show, part opinion poll, part reality show, and a whole lot of fun. And it's completely dependent upon your participation as a guest. To be considered as a guest for a future show, check out the website at www.youaretheguest.com for details. Now here's your program host, Bill Grady. Greetings from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, and welcome to show 18 of You Are the Guest, the show where we talk to everyday people just like you and me about their lives and about the issues of the day. Our guest today is author Mark Horner. Mark, welcome to our program. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about your professional history. Uh, Actually, my timeline is not too far off from yours, actually. I was reading your bio on your website. Um, I actually got into broadcasting, and uh, well, first of all, with an internship while wrapping up college. That would have been uh, in 1986. It was a sports internship. The following year, I was out of college, and I got my uh, landed my first television job. And I actually got hired as a sports reporter slash cameraman slash editor, the old one-man band story. Um, and while at that first station, I had the opportunity to fill in um, after a news person left. Uh, so I got to fill in as a news person. Uh, reporting and shooting my, my stories and editing them, and um, and then ultimately had a chance to fill in as anchor, and lo and behold, it became a news reporter slash anchor uh, at that station, and then went on to, a, that was in Wenatchee, Washington, a tiny uh, town in uh, central Washington known for its apples and agriculture, a beautiful place to live. And then from there, I went to Yakima, Washington, a slightly larger town, and worked as a uh, news reporter and anchor there. And... Uh, well, eventually migrated to Tucson, Arizona in the early 90s, 91, and spent uh, about three years there working as a reporter. Went to the Midwest and worked in Wisconsin for the better part of a year before going to the Southwest once again, and uh, spent 10 years working in Albuquerque, New Mexico, first for the uh, CBS affiliate KRQE television, and then the past five years for KOB TV, which is the NBC affiliate. And um, I'm uh, a single dad now. Uh, Bill, and kind of rearranging my life, and I actually chose to leave the profession um, a few months ago and have returned to Washington State, which is where uh, I was raised and went to school and went to college and began my career, as I noted earlier, and uh, and actually looking for work up here at the moment and actually enjoying some great time with family. Uh, Much of my family, of course, I haven't seen for a number of years because my profession took me away for about 15 years, so... How did you get involved with the Gurley Chu Hosenkoft case? Got involved in September of 1999, and that is when Gurley disappeared. And uh, as that story broke in Albuquerque, um, I quickly learned, as did everybody else, that this woman had previously gone to the Albuquerque Police Department and the FBI to say that her estranged husband, whom she had a restraining order against and whom she was in the process of divorcing, um, had vowed that she will be killed and uh, had laughed when stating that no one will ever find her body. The last contact of that nature was with the FBI, her second contact with the FBI, by the way, when she went to a special agent and shared the sentiment again and asked for help. 
And unfortunately, in the eyes of the FBI, they felt there was nothing that they could legally do at that point to interject or intervene. And the next day, Gurley was kidnapped and Gurley was killed. And here we are now, nearly, well, actually, more than six years later now. And Gurley's body has never been found. Who was Gurley? What type of a person was she from your research? It's interesting because I spoke to a lot of people, family in Malaysia, people who worked with her, people who were at the, her instructors at the karate class. She took up karate during her divorce proceedings because she felt that the day would come when she would need to uh, protect herself and use hand-to-hand combat. People there, people everywhere who came in contact with Gurley said glowing things about her. She was humble. She was pleasant. She was extremely dependable. When she was an outstanding employee at work, she worked for the Bank of America. She was often teller of the year, not just at her local branch, but throughout the region. She, as a result, she won trips to San Francisco and other places. Um, she had a great zeal for life, uh, enjoyed people and the relationships that she had formed with people, and uh, embraced the Southwest, uh, New Mexico, having come from Malaysia, wanted to learn how to cook New Mexican cuisine, um, she was perhaps a little shy in some ways, um, but she, uh, she attacked nonetheless anything serious in her life with zeal, and that includes the karate. She came in there, I was told by her instructors, a bit shy, a bit timid, but she, uh, she just embraced it and went for it. Soon muscles were forming in her arms and legs, co-workers could notice that. So she was, um, she was the type of person who followed through on anything she set out to do. You try not to make anybody sound angelic, perhaps, when writing a book, because how many of us are truly angels? Um, But it was hard to find a bad word from anyone about Gurley. Talk to me about the three other people in the book. Diazen Hasenkoft was actually born Armando Chavez in Texas. And uh, in the early 1990s, he changed his name to Diazen Hasenkoft, it is said, because he felt those two words, those two names reflected what he considered to be the master or superior races, Japanese and German. In short, he was a con man, and he conned lots and lots of people, not just within his own community, but across the country. And the Internet was his web of deceit. He could use that to establish uh, relationships, was simultaneously engaged to numerous women at once. But his victims weren't just women, although that was typically the case. He also had victims who were men, young and old, um, where he would get them excited, for example, about business ventures. He purported to um, have cutting-edge scientific technology that was going to reap millions if only people would invest in it. Um, He purported to be a uh, heart surgeon um, on the cutting edge. Um, He had a woman in Santa Fe, New Mexico, convinced that his form of medicines um, would uh, save her from the breast cancer that was uh, ravaging her body, and she put her complete faith and trust in him and paid him tw- upwards of $25,000 a month uh, for well over a year. And um, she ended up dying uh, of a, a very severe death related to complications from, uh, from the breast cancer, of course. Uh, but before she died, she went on hot cruises with Hasenkoff, Alaska, the Caribbean, where simultaneously he would befriend other women and try and work his scams on them. Um, 
he also, throughout all of this, purported to be dying of leukemia. He never had leukemia, but he had, he was quite a showman. He would be seen to throw up what appeared to be vomiting, what appeared to be blood, um, having the sweats and uh, injecting himself. Uh, and he would store vials of human blood, take people's blood and store it in his refrigerator. Um, it was all very, very bizarre. Linda Henning? Well, see, there was this component of Hasenkoff, which um, he would tell some people that um, he was an alien. Linda Henning had, a, uh, had a, an extreme interest in UFOs already, and Hasenkoff, um, like he did with so many people, he would identify his victims, their passions, and he would become the biggest fan of those passions. So to learn that Linda Henning had a, had a zeal for uh, the paranormal, UFOs, things of that nature, Hasenkoff latched onto it proclaimed himself to be an alien. Depending on who he was talking to, he was anywhere from 50 to 10,000 years old. Actually, at the time, he was in his mid to early 30s. Um, he told some that he was from the, the Giga planet, is what he called it. Um, you have to know that Hasenkopf, um it seems as if he wrote the script for this facade that he put on from the, a combination of various pop culture uh, items, namely movies. Um, in his bedroom on a shelf at the foot of the bed where he would watch television in the bedroom. He had shelves of, um, you know, V, um, uh, different sci-fi thrillers. And, uh, you know, inevitably, as I tell people about Hasenkopf and some of the things he had said, I'll hear, well, that seems like it came from this movie. And sure enough, that would typically be one of the movies among many that he would have in his bedroom. So it just seems like he kind of created this character out of all these uh, sci-fi oftentimes B-movies. But Henning became totally consumed by Hasenkopf, um, and that's not an overstatement. She attended a UFO group. She brought Hasenkopf there. Um, the two of them went, and uh, she was very defensive of Hasenkopf, who was not shy at all of uh, announcing that he was this medical expert, even an alien, and um, had the ability to save lives, and cutting-edge science, and Linda Henning, up until Hasenkopf at the UF, uh, up until Hasenkopf's arrival, Henning had been actually really admired as this very sharply dressed, uh, attractive businesswoman. But people say that that um, all seemed to unravel in a period of about five weeks. Five weeks after she met Hasenkopf, she become she became disheveled. Her uh, speech pattern suddenly changed to being uh, very urgent, fast as if there was this lingering uh, sense of doom and something must be done before uh, planet Earth has something very bad happen here. Um, and it was all uh, fueled by Hasenkopf. Now, Bill Miller, it depends on who you talk to, quite frankly. Um, the prosecution and police investigating this, uh, this case would have you believe that Bill Miller um, publicly was this uh, gentle giant, but uh, behind the scenes was what they believed to be... Um, uh, a, a militia-type person, a total distrust of government, heavily armed, a gun enthusiast, um, fearing a new world order. And uh, in, as applied to this case specifically, the prosecution believes that, and the police, that Bill Miller was directly involved in the killing of Hasenkopf. Hasenkopf himself eventually said that Bill Miller did take part and that Bill Miller had told him, allegedly, that he had always wanted to hunt a human being and gut it like a fish, and therefore did not hesitate when allegedly um, confronted by Hasenkopf and offered the opportunity to kidnap and kill Gurley Chu Hasenkopf. So 
that's one side of what you'll hear about Bill Miller. Now, the other side is there are a good many people in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who have who had children who are grown now, but while growing up, played typically on girls' soccer teams where Mr. Miller had a daughter um, who played on those teams, and, and Miller was very active in coaching and uh participating in the lives of, of children and, and, you know, being there for them as a coach and uh, was just known as this gentle giant, a guy who just loved kids, loved to take them fishing, things of that nature. So you get two distinctively different portraits of Bill Miller. How did everybody get connected? Well, Hasenkopf um, went to a gymnasium where he worked out, and he oftentimes spoke with the gym manager um, about UFOs and things of this nature. And one day, lo and behold, a a woman who worked for a company that collected um, or actually provided payroll services for that gymnasium showed up. She began speaking with the same gym manager and and the gym manager said, boy, you you know, given some of your interests, you've got to meet this guy who comes in here named Dyson Hasenkoft. The two of you have similar interests. Well, Linda, um, the story goes, went out set out to find Hasenkoft and um, uh, had, had known Bill Miller and, 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 that Miller, and then Miller takes, uh, Henning got the address for, for Hasenkoft from the gym manager and Linda Henning uh, allegedly had Bill Miller take her to Hasenkoft's residence where, the two of, where she knocked on the door and said, hello, here I am. And the next thing you know, the three of them are attending um, the UFO meetings together. Linda had um, attended prior to all of this, um, there had been a book signing at an Albuquerque bookstore called Page One, where a guy who writes about the paranormal was the author. And at that time, uh, backing up now, Linda met members of this UFO group. So that's how she initially got involved with the UFO group. And then going down our timeline, she is working for a company that does payroll work for the gymnasium. That's where she hears about Hasenkopf. And then she and fellow group member Bill Miller go to Hasenkopf's home, and that's where she knocks on the door, and the rest, as they say, is history. What were the events that triggered the plot and the eventual murder of Gurley? Well, um, one is tempted to say, we don't want to give the entire book away, but I think that's fair because there's so much that's in the book. Um, there, what, what happened was this, this, you know, how dare Gurley, she was going to divorce him by all means. You know, Hasenkopf, if nothing else, liked control. You know, initially when he met someone new, he knew whether or not within 30 seconds he could he could exploit that person or whether or not that person would be, you know, on to him, so to speak. So once he sort of in his mind took ownership of a person with his cons and had them on his, his line, so to speak, um, I think he felt a great sense of control. And that's... That's nothing terribly new. Control issues have been are, are age old. They go back to the eons in the human race. So once Gurley, who um, had been the victim of, ultimately of two um, domestic violence episodes with Hasenkopf, once she finally got the gumption, the nerve, and the determination to separate herself from Hasenkopf, i.e., move out and file for divorce, Hasenkopf increasingly grew angry, especially since she was looking for a piece of the pie, i.e. the divorce settlement. That would include you know, money that would be coming from the sale of the home. And he vowed to one of his girlfriends that she would never see a dime, that she would never see a dime of that money. Now, that's truly what I believe 
was the impetus for his rage, ultimately, was this, uh, not only how dare she leave me, but how dare she try and get some of my money. Um, and keep in mind, Gurley came from Malaysia. I do not believe she was a mail-order bride. I do not. Um, I, I don't think that that can be, that can be documented in any way, shape, or form. Um, but she did come here, and Hasenkopf expected her to be a good, a good wife, one to stay home, one to bear him children, something that was later learned she couldn't do. Gurley could not have children. It was a great disappointment. But how dare this woman, who was expected to be basically subservient to Hasenkopf, you know, take the initiative to move out and file for divorce. And then how dare she expect, you know, to get any of his money. You know, that, this is the way he's thinking. So that, once Hasenkopf um, got his mind made up, it became quite apparent that he was determined to have her eliminated. And, uh, and Hasenkopf, you know, he wasn't entirely tight-lipped. Like I mentioned, he began to leak a little bit of his plot to a girlfriend. You know, she won't see a dime. In fact, he eventually confides in this girlfriend that, um, that the, girl, the girlfriend actually says, well, someone will find the body. And he says, oh, no, no, the, the, body, the body won't be found. And she says, well, how, how do you know that? Well, he says, you can't find the body, not if it's been dissected. Now, there are other accounts where he was allegedly um, really looking into what lime and other chemicals, acids, could do to a human body to help make it go away. That's why I said earlier, you know, if there's anything left to be found. You mentioned radio host Art Bell in your book. Well, I did. Tell me about that. You know, it's actually a component that I'm, I'm a bit surprised hasn't caught more, uh, more eyes, if you will. Um, that it has, I, I've actually done some searches on Google just to see if any discussions come up uh, as a result of me putting Art Bell's name in the book. Um, I kind of, you know, there was no doubt that the people in the UFO group were avid listeners of Art Bell, his, his radio program, Coast to Coast. And, um, you know, that, that's precisely the type of subject matter that Hasenkopf himself um, would latch on to. And going a step further, and there's a guy named David Icke, and he has been a guest, it's my understanding, on, on the Coast to Coast program. And it's Icke who has a book... That addresses what he calls the biggest secret, the world's biggest secret, and he's very good. Ike is at initially on his videotape because he's produced a program on this, beginning with um, circles of logic, if you will, which most people would buy into. But then the circles get larger, and he's asking you to to chomp off, chomp off and and buy into, if you will some more, what, let's call them, alarming beliefs of David Icke. And what the ultimate endgame is, is that David Icke teaches that many of the world's countries are ruled by very few, um, and they're all part of what he calls the Illuminati, um, these, what he calls, shape-shifting reptilians that are truly in, some, are, are truly in reptilian form, but shape-shift into human form, and could only hold their, uh, up until now anyway, um, at least, their, their human form by consuming human blood. And so there are these so-called uh, rituals where, and sacrifices. Um, and, and this is something that David Icke teaches, and it's something that Linda Henning latched onto. And the prosecution in following this case um, fears greatly that there was a ritual performed 
on, on Gurley Chu Hasenkoft and that there was the consuming of her flesh and blood by, in the eyes of the prosecution and police, as many as, you know, three people, um, Hasenkoft, Henning, and Miller. And, you know, as for the evidence in this case, you know, Gurley's clothing, it's a bit of a miracle, but Gurley's clothing was found on the side of a highway along with twisted bits of duct tape um, and a tarp 120 miles southwest of Albuquerque along a remote highway in the middle of the desert. And on her blouse, interestingly enough, I mean, there was blood throughout her clothing, but on her blouse in particular, what's disturbing is that you not only find these specks of blood, but it's entwined, if you will, with someone else's DNA. And it's the DNA of Dyson Hasenkopf, but it's not his blood. It's his saliva. So, and when looking at the tarpaulin, the prosecution says that when you look at it, you can make out, and it's in the prosecution's eyes now, what seem to be the impressions of a sword and, and lumps of flesh. Now, a, a ninja sword was found hidden in Linda Henning's garage in the, uh, the space above um, the ceiling. And there had been blood on the blade, but someone had worked, it appears, fairly desperately to remove it. So the DNA was compromised, and they could, know, they could not determine from whom that blood came. In addition, there were some specks of blood on the handle, and that blood came from Dyson Hasenkopf. What was it like to cover Dyson's arrest and his court trial? Well, when he was arrested, that was a pretty big deal. Um, he was found in South Carolina. You see, simultaneous to his whole plot on Gurley was included this, uh, this con of a woman he conned in, San, in, in uh, South Carolina. And believe it or not, they were engaged, although they had never met in person. This woman knew nothing about Gurley. This, not, this woman knew nothing about another woman Dyson had been sleeping with, Linda Henning. Nothing about another woman Dyson had been sleeping with. Um, the girlfriend I alluded to earlier. She just knew that she had a boyfriend in New Mexico who was one heck of a successful doctor, and she was to fly out from South Carolina to New Mexico on September 9th, and 1999, get in the car with him and drive back to South Carolina. And uh, while that's all unfolding prior to Hasenkopf getting in the car and saying farewell to New Mexico, he's involved in the, in the kidnapping and murder of Gurley. So um, some time does go by, and everybody's looking for Hasenkopf. You see, his, his house was up for sale when he left, and a day or two before Gurley's disappearance, um, movers had, had uh, been at the home and taken things away from Dyson Hasenkopf's home for, for his move. So the FBI found him in South Carolina when he got picked up uh, later in September. It was, it was a big deal. You know, I saw him. Finally, he was arraigned on the murder charges. Um, in Albuquerque. I say finally because he was initially held on federal charges for telephonic threats. You see, when he split town, he was keeping abreast of the investigation. He was calling people associated with the case, namely witnesses, and threatening them. So they could hold him on those charges, and so he was, he was held um, at, a, at an institution in Torrance County, New Mexico. It ultimately, the time comes to arraign him on the murder charges, and when that happens, he shows up in this white federal inmate suit in Albuquerque in the uh, state courthouse there and he uh, 
he's uh, he's actually in the courtroom and he's he's having a t- uh, an obviously good time. He's staring people down. He's got this whimsical dancing, fanciful expression on his face. He's clearly enjoying being in the spotlight. And um, as he leaves the courtroom, I'm backpedaling with my camera, taking photos of him. And he looks at me, and in his uh, almost Truman Capote-type voice, he says, Come see me in jail sometime. (laughs) And, uh, of course, I pursued that avenue, but his attorney at the time, a gentleman uh, who's now since passed on, Ron Koch, uh, he didn't think it was a good idea to have a reporter visit his client. So that was my first um, venture down that path to interview Hasenkoff in, in behind bars. I was not successful. In fact, I never visited him uh, behind bars. We corresponded by letter for over a period off and on of years. And uh, we even had a recess in court one day where I was uh, allowed to step forward and sit down with him in court for about 20 minutes and speak with him one-on-one. And that was interesting. He eventually confessed, so why did he confess? Okay, this is in the book, and actually this is a, one of the new revelations that comes out in the book. You see, Hasenkopf was maintaining his innocence all along, and simultaneously, while behind bars, he couldn't resist the opportunity to, to attempt to impress what he perceived as important people and show off a little with his knowledge. He had gone to medical school, after all, a bit of medical school, um, before getting kicked out. And so he had grasped enough, if you will, to sound as if he might know what he's talking about. And to some, he was very convincing with the terminology that he could throw out there. So he set out to impress a guy by the name of Jeffrey Padilla. Now, Jeffrey Padilla is uh, a member of a notorious gang in New Mexico named Los Padillas. He's, in short, if I may say so, what's our rating on this program? <laughs> no rating. He's a badass, okay? And, you know, Los Padillas, it's believed by investigating authorities, is involved with the trafficking of drugs, surprise, surprise, including black tar heroin. Well, you don't want to mess with this gang, okay? Well, Padilla is all of a sudden behind bars simultaneously. The Hasenkopf visit behind bars, and Padilla is uh, up for two murders. Other cases, which I also happen to cover as a reporter in, in Albuquerque, while in Albuquerque, um, so Hasenkopf befriends Padilla, and, you know, Hasenkopf spends a lot of time in that law library, too, while behind bars, and he, he's, uh, you know, giving legal advice, it's believed, to Jeffrey Padilla. But then Hasenkopf makes a mistake. In his uh, ongoing letter writing to his fellow defendant in the case, Linda Henning, he says he writes something to the effect of uh, that Jeffrey Padilla is as guilty as the day is long. Not an exact quote, but that's a sentiment. Well, the prosecution gets a hold of that letter. It, it, it gets intercepted, you see, because Henning and Hasenkopf were not supposed to be writing back and forth. They had been forbidden to do that. And so um, the letter got intercepted. And when it came to the prosecution's attempted in the, uh, attention in the Hasenkopf case, the prosecutor, Paul Spears, said, wow, it's, apparently Hasenkopf has some important information about the Padilla case, the two murders. So he felt obliged to notify the prosecutor in the Padilla case. Now there's this possibility um, that Hasenkopf may appear as a witness in the Padilla case. Now, if the prosecutor in the Padilla case has gotten has received wind of it, that Hasenkopf apparently has written something not too flattering about Hasenkopf and appears to have knowledge of why he might be guilty, and follow the chain here, Padilla's own defense attorney is going to learn about that, and he did. So Jeffrey Padilla is going to learn about it now. In the eyes of Jeffrey Padilla, you've crossed me, right? 
you've crossed me. Now, in New Mexico, it's not unheard of for people who have crossed the wrong people to be found dead in their jail cells or prison cells. Los Padillas is closely linked to um, uh, the Sindicato de Nuevo Mexico, which is the New Mexico Syndicate, which is a violent prison gang born out of the 1980 infamous uh, prison riot in Santa Fe where some 30-odd people lost their lives. So you really don't want to cross Jeffrey Padilla. He knows all the right people to have you killed, so to speak, okay? So all of a sudden, realizing this corner that he's in, Hasenkopf comes out of nowhere to change his tune, no longer saying that he's innocent up and down. He's saying, okay, I'm willing to tell you everything I know. Plead guilty. Get me the heck out of New Mexico. Let's say put me in Wyoming, and I'll serve a life sentence. You must not give me the death penalty. And to jump forward, the state bites. They said, okay, we'll do this. Now, what was key is Hasenkopf said, I'll tell you everything I know. Unfortunately, a lot of people, including those of us in the media, although I wasn't one of them, but many people, most people in the media, thought that, means, thought that meant that Hasenkopf was going to reveal the location of a girlie's body. But he never said he would do that. He said that I would tell you everything I know about the, body, about the murder. And when he spoke and finally laid it out there, he, he stated that Bill Miller did the hunting and, and the killing, that I, I organized it all. I was the guy who put the whole plan into motion. But where she was killed and what became of her body, I don't know because I wasn't there. I was just merely the guy in charge is what he said. He said his job was to make sure that the uh, apartment from where Gurley was kidnapped was cleaned up so it would be difficult to determine who had been there. Um, but Hasenkopf got his deal. Um, he's now serving, um, he's going to serve out the rest of his life in the state of Wyoming, Rollins, Wyoming, and that's where he is till this day. Here are the final five questions. At what point did you decide to write this book? Well, I, 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 I thought it would be great to write this book um, soon after some of the more sensational details of the case began to emerge. Um, I previously wanted to write two other books. I didn't do it. I always regretted that. And then finally, um, in late 2002, um, I got the impetus I needed to get serious about it. And I, I got serious about it. And I put together a book proposal and spent three months on that and then secured a deal um, toward going toward June of 2003. And I began writing the book, sat down to actually write the book in June of 2003. What toll did this trial take on you personally? Well, it, uh, it took a lot. and It certainly was time demanding. You certainly had to um, be married to it in a way um, day and night at times while writing it, obviously, because there was just so much that had been um, filed in court and, and at the police department. There were... There's thousands and thousands of pages of documents, plus I did a lot of interviewing on my own. And, and uh, so I had built countless transcripts of interviews that I had done myself. So it was, it was very, very demanding. At times it was dark. I won't kid you. I mean, to immerse yourself in this subject matter, it gets pretty dark at times. So, um, but, you know, you just work through it. And, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm really glad I did what I did. Who was the most interesting person that you met connected with this case? Oh, there were a lot of interesting people. I mean, um, 
Uh, you can't argue with the fact, but for all the wrong reasons, I guess. Hasenkopf was certainly interesting. I found, you know, the prosecutor and some of the investigators very interesting. I admired the great work that they did, um, the way they lived and breathed it and sacrificed their own time over a period of uh, certainly the initial six months they lived and breathed it. And then it, you know, also um, went into the years in terms of their attachment to this case. Um, some of the friends of Gurley I really um, came to know quite well. Um, and, and very, respect very much. Just good people, you know. The like so many of the, you know, the countless faces out there. Just the good people of the world. Yet they all have their own stories, and I just feel blessed actually to have gained their confidence um, along the way and have them share um, things with me that I thought um, helped add to the book and, and helped enrich the telling of the story. So there's, you know, Hasenkopf was certainly interesting. I found the prosecutor very interesting, Paul Spears. Um, but there were just many interesting people attached to the story. Why do you think that people believe that there are aliens from another world walking among us? Wow. Now that's quite a question. Um, I, I can't, I don't know that I can give you a single answer that, you know, applies across the board to everyone. You know, I think that there are people who are certainly good people who, who want to believe that or perhaps, in fact, do believe it, and they're good people. The danger, I think, um, comes when it becomes, there's this extreme paranoia attached to it, and you do believe that every new thing that makes a headline in the newspaper is somehow attached to this idea of this, uh, well, on the our Bell program, they used this notion of the, uh, back, in, back then, uh, it was called the quickening, that some big thing was about to happen here, this new world order uh, and in the case of David Icke, the, the emergence of these aliens will soon come out where they will no longer need to maintain their reptilian form and they can appear before us as reptilians. And I'm telling you, that sounds, I know, believe me, very crazy. And, uh, but when you go onto the web and, you know, check out davidicke.com. Um, it's David and all one word, Icke, I-C-K-E.com. You'll soon find, go to your local bookstore, his books are there. You'll soon find that, I don't think it's probably in a, a lowball number. There could be a million, if not more, many more people around the world who are severely interested in his teachings. And if you do latch on to that, um, then someone like Linda Henning, who may perhaps have been predisposed to want to run with gusto on something like this at such an accelerated level, can be dangerously convinced that you're doing good uh, that you're do actually somehow doing the planet Earth good by killing a human being because um, it's believed you know, by the prosecution and police that she was brainwashed into believing that Gurley was an alien queen who threatened planet Earth. So that's where I think the real danger comes in. And that's why I think that, um, you know, and I'm not the first one, I think, to express this. Um, uh, there was a columnist for, the, for uh, the, uh, an Arizona newspaper out of Phoenix um, who wrote about Art Bell's program after Timothy McVeigh and actually believed that people like Art Bell kind of provided fuel for the Timothy McVeighs of the world to be distrustful of the government and, and um, things of that nature. Fair or unfair, it caused quite a stir back then when that columnist wrote that, and certainly Art Bell's fans came to his defense. But I think Linda Henning is proof that people can, certain people can become dangerous to others when they have this manic attachment to um, this extreme, what they perceive as a threat to our world. In your opinion, what likely happened? 
I think Hasenkopf was there. I think he did. I think Gurley's blood was in his mouth, and he spat it out. Um, I think, certainly, I think Linda Henning was there. Um, and, you know, it's a toss-up on Bill Miller. Um, I think, the, I, certainly, I know that the, the prosecution and police believe he was directly involved with the kidnapping and murder. I think they can build a very solid and convincing argument, and I regret that that argument never saw the light of day before a jury in, in, in court. Um, I wish that would have happened so that, you know, guilty or innocent, at least there would have been a verdict on all of that. Um, and I think it's very, very important to note in Bill Miller's defense that unlike Hasenkopf and Henning, none of his DNA was ever found attached to any of the evidence in the case. Mark, it's time to play Ask Bill 3. This is where I get to turn the tables and turn the microphone over to you, and you can ask me three questions about anything. So fire away. Oh. All right. You know, I have to confess, I'm going to come out here and tell you that I have a little bit of podcast envy. I think it's great what you're doing, and having listened to your programming, I think it's very good. Um, so I would like to ask you, what does a person need to start and maintain successful podcasts? Well, I, I think, though, the big thing in starting a successful podcast is to have a concept that looks on long term, something that you can commit to both on a time frame, something obviously on a, on a subject matter, and something that you can see yourself doing for, for a long, long time. And, um, you know, podcasting right now is so much in the infancy that it's really probably not going to catch on for a few more years. So whether some of the programs that are popular now will be able to have that type of longevity, we'll have to see. But I think that you really need to have a, a good concept of the program that you want to do and make that commitment to say this is something that I'm going to do either every day or every week or twice a month or something like that. Very good. And Ed, you actually kind of uh, led toward answering my next question, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway. Do you feel the future of traditional radio programming married first to the AM FM dial is in any way threatened by the emergence and growing popularity of podcasting? I think radio has some definite benefits that podcasting will never, ever be able to capsulize. For example, local sports, as it happens, weather announcements, local news, and it really translates into the smaller the market, the more a community is dependent upon the radio station. Now... Where it comes back is that the larger the market you are, the, the bigger the target you are as far as talk content. Because all of a sudden people don't have to be at their radio from 11 to 2 to listen to the program. They can kind of pick and choose. So I think that there are certain parts of the AM talk radio genre, if you will, that will certainly see the effect of podcasting once the general public picks up that, hey, this stuff is out there. Excellent. You started your career as a radio announcer, then moved into sales, and it's clear you had a satisfying career in sales and volunteer work. That said, do you ever wonder where your career might have gone had you continued working on air? I think I made the right choice at the right time. I don't think that I was in any way ready to make all those commitments and all those jumps that somebody has to make to make that a strong point of their career. 
So right. I made the I made the right choice at the right time, and I think that that is one of the things that has benefited me. Was right. that I made the right career choices at the right time. I I got on the right time. I got off the right time, and because of that, I, I really don't have any regrets. And who would have thought that something like podcasting would have been available back in the 1980s or the internet right. or anything like that? So. Because of all the choices that I made, I, I've allowed myself to take a look at the next opportunity. And so because of that, I have no regrets. Wonderful. In fact, I, I listen, that ties in very well with what I heard you say in one of your previous interviews. Um, and I think it was during the Ask Bill 3 segment. And that's where you were speaking about quality of life, of quality of life as it turns out, attached to our choices. So I, I, I can hear that theme still through your answer here tonight or this afternoon. Well, great job on your program, Bill. It's a, it's, it's a, you put it together very nicely. It's, uh, it's technically clean, it sounds good, and it's well-produced and has good content, which is most important. So good job. Well, thank you very much. And, and coming from somebody that's been on television and, and, and somebody that, that I, I think has done a wonderful job in investigative reporting, I, I, I really appreciate that. Oh, I'll be listening again. You can count on it. Mark, tell us how people can get your book and um, tell people about your website as well. Okay, sure. Um, they can oftentimes uh, go to their local bookstores. Uh, they oftentimes have it. Um, you might want to call first um, just to make sure before you drive down uh, to go check it out. Um, libraries often have it. That's an option. Um, you could also order it from Amazon, or if you'd like to, you know, order it from my website and learn more about the book first uh, before ordering it, please do go to my website, and that is uh, markhorner.com. That's M-A-R-K-H-O-R-N-E-R dot com forward slash pause. H-O, S is in Sam, S is in Sam. And that website is actually the compilation of about five years of work. Shortly after Gurley's disappearance, I started a website because I needed an outlet, I felt, to tell a story that was getting undertold. And um, so I filed reports and, and posted many photographs, hundreds, that I've taken over the years. And, and it's also further complemented by the posting of some court documents and other uh, artifacts related to this case. So it's, it's, there are probably about a couple hundred pages alone on my website now as a result of all the work invested in this, the, the investigation and telling of this story. So. Um, I thank you, Bill, very much for your interest in, in this book that I've written, and I thank your listeners for uh, their, in, their interest in this interview as well as any who might visit my website. I really do appreciate it. You're very welcome. The book, again, is called September Sacrifice by Mark Horner. Once again, good luck with the book. Thank you so much, Bill. If you'd like to be a guest on a future show, just go to our website at www.youaretheguest.com. Submit your first name, the town where you live, and a short description on why you'd make a good guest. There is no charge for being a guest, and you'll have the opportunity to share what you think and how the news and events from today affect your life. The show's producers will contact you by email if you're chosen for a future show. Psst, I need to tell you something. It's about the best-kept secret on the Internet. Yeah, that's right. PodcastPickle.com, the best podcasting directory on the Internet.
That's show 18 of You Are the Guest. And taking us out are two songs from the Poncho Ponsafe Music Network. It's a double shot of Black Furies with Tighten Up and Let It Rock. From the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, I'm Bill Grady. Thanks for listening. I'm
Music provided from the Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.